first a letter to the Thessalonians. We are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I've entitled my message this morning, Living in Light of the Lord's Day. Now we're not talking about Sunday, although that can be a reference to Sunday as it is in Scripture. This is the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, also a day of glory. This is one of the most a short, a short epistle, but with several references to what we call eschatology. It comes from a Greek word, eschaton, which means last or last things, the study of last things or prophecy. Uh, there is, in the eschatological studies, Heinz 57 varieties of different views on different things. In the scriptures, I try to stay with what the scriptures are saying and not try to read some theological system into it per se, although I do have a theological system of eschatology. Nonetheless, we try to be honest and fair with what the scriptures teach. I'll not take time to read the text this morning for, for the sake of the meetings we have following, and that is the Lord's Table and also the special meeting later on after the, the service. Uh, I like to read the Word of God it, in its purity. It is powerful. Last week we looked at verses 13 through 18. I suggested to you that it was in the form of a chiism or a chiism. It comes from the Greek letter chi. Uh, Christos, the first letter of Christos or Messiah, is looks like an X. It's transliterated C-H. But it has a hard pronunciation to it, a K sound. Christ, and that's why it's called a chiasm. It looks like an X that's been cut in two. It's been severed, one side of it, and so then it looks like an inversion. An inversion. And it's, it's a literary device that's, that uh, writers of Scripture, sometimes we think these people are knuckle uh, draggers and that they uh, don't have real skills in writing and their their uh, literary skills are you know <laughs> uh, very poor that's that's not true and one of the literary devices they use is is chiasm i suggested last week that what we looked at was was in the form of a of a chiasm and the the main point that was to be derived from that, recapping what we looked at last week, 
is that the promise of resurrection provides comfort for grieving saints. They were uninformed. That's what the word, I would not have you to be ignorant. They didn't have or the information concerning loved ones in the Lord who had died. Will we see them again? Will there be a resurrection of dead saints? Ostensibly, there were those who were calling that into question. And so Paul writes to clarify that. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I told you, I believe it parallels the last verse. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So verses 17 back to verse 14 are the words. Those are the words that Paul writes to bring comfort to ignorant believers concerning those who've died in Christ and what happens to them. And we saw that there is the promise, first of all, of resurrection. And that's predicated on everything Jesus taught during his lifetime and particularly what he taught uh, at the resurrection of Lazarus. And even spoke of his own resurrection. There is this promise of the resurrection of saints. And first of all we saw that in verse 14. There is the promise of those who've died. And gone to be with him are asleep in Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose again. Even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So when this resurrection takes place, those who have died in Jesus, in Christ, will be brought out of the grave and given a glorified body. And then verse 17, which I said is parallel, there's a promise of resurrection of living saints. Now it's called a rapture or a catching away, a transformation a change that language is used behold I show you a mystery in other words it was not revealed with clarity until Paul was given a word from the Lord he describes it here in verse 15 a word of the Lord Uh, we say by the word of the Lord and in Corinthians he says I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep in other words when Christ comes back for resurrection that there will be those there who are alive. What happens to them? Well, they're changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound the dead shall be rise, raised incorruptible. We which are alive will be raised too, will be transformed uh, and receive a glorified body. That happens. That's a promise. The promise of resurrection. Resurrection of living saints. But we also saw, and that lastly in this chiasm, that is the two middle verses in this inversion. Verses 15 and 16, which are in parallel with each other. Both of them emphasize that dead saints have precedence in this process. 
dead saints have precedence in the process and they have priority. To think for a moment that dead saints won't rise, they will rise, and guess what? They get first dibs. Verse 15, for we say by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Well, beloved, I hope I'm alive when the rapture takes place. My rapture will not precede dead saints. And not only does it receive precedence, but it receives priority. Because verse 16 in parallel says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So in both of these verses, by parallelism, he is establishing very clearly that those about whom they're worried or concerned and grieving about, they get top priority. They're going up first in resurrection. And might I say along with that, if that is the case, those who die or sleep in Jesus, then how can there be a general resurrection of which Matthew 25 is alluded to in that, and also the great white throne judgment. How can there be a separation of sheep and goat? Now, those who are separated there are not resurrected people. Those are people who survived a period of time called the tribulation period, and they're judged at the end of it. That's what the Olivet Discourse is all about. So these saints... This is the separation here. These do not have to come back down and be separated. They've already been separated and they're glorified. They're in heaven. And they come back with Christ. Now moving on to chapter 5. I suggest to you here that again it's in the form of a chiasm. Verses 1 and 2 parallel verse 11. The comfort of the fully informed. It parallels verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And may I suggest this too. uh, That that is parallel with verse 18. In the previous text. Comfort one another with these, or no, I'm sorry, verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another as you also are doing. So the fact that they are building each up in, in the faith is indicative of believers that are not in question. They're not ignorant about what's going on. For verse 2 tells us, for you yourselves know And the word perfectly can be translated accurately. It can be translated certainly. You know. Because on these, these points, you're informed. On the other point, the resurrection of 
Christians who've died, you are ignorant. I've just dispelled that ignorance. But when it comes to the Lord coming back in this day of the Lord, you're fully taught on that. Now they became confused again in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Verse 1, he says, Brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord, the parousia, and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord or the day of Christ has come. They thought they were in this day of the Lord. And he says, no, there are certain things that have to take place or transpire in order for this day to unfold. We'll leave that to another message when we get into Second Thessalonians. So verses 1 and 2. Parallel verse 11, in that they are fully informed and they are comforted by their mutual edification of each other. I suggest to you that verse 3 parallels verses 9 and 10. Verse 3 emphasizes the inescapable day of the Lord. And for believers, verses 9 and 10, it is a promise of deliverance. It is a promise of deliverance or rescue. The salvation in view and the deliverance in view here is obviously from this judgment that takes place at the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is inescapable. But those of us who are believers are going to be delivered or rescued from that. And then finally, and very importantly, we are to live soberly in light of the Lord's day. And the reason we can do that is because we have been prepared. We're prepared believers. We're not in darkness. We're sons of light. That's what the text says. We are uniquely different. And those who are not in darkness, those who are sons of life, have, uh, have a responsibility to live soberly. And he gives a reason for that sobriety and then tells us the application of certain accoutrements of our armor for that sobriety. Which all leads me to this point that the sons of light which you are, which I am, by adoption. Huios. Are to live soberly in confidence of their ultimate deliverance. Our behavior, our lifestyle, is to be uniquely different in light of the Lord's return. So let's look at this text very quickly, and we may follow up next week on it. Chapter 5, verse 1, But concerning the times 
and the seasons, brethren. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly or accurately that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And what does this scenario look like? Well, we'll get to it momentarily. Suffice to say and introduce it, it says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Once this day unfolds, of which, may I remind you, we will not have a part in that. Those who are unbelievers and enter into this day of the Lord will not escape it. Once the delivery takes place, and he uses the imagery of a pregnancy, of a woman in labor pains, once that is initiated, those who are caught in it are going to be delivered over to judgment, the judgment of the day of the Lord. It's going to be an horrendous event. It's like one of my professors said, chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, which we studied, by the way, last year and part of this year, the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, give us a glimpse of that day and the horrendous nature and the unparalleled judgments that take place during that period of time, something which no one would want to be a part of. Concerning the times and the seasons, uses a very affectionate term again, brothers, brethren, you have no need. I came across an interesting analysis. I've referred to this author before, and I refer to him again because generally I consult him to see if he has any particular insights, and that's E.W. Bullinger. And he calls this section here, in, in, uh, down to verse 5, he calls it a, a repetition. Repetitio is called in the Latin. Repetition. And the, and the repetition is on the contrast between you and them. You and them. Notice, you have no need that I should write unto you. And then reflexively, he adds this reflexive pronoun, you yourselves know. For when they, and it's contrasted here, you and they, and when they, third person plural, say peace and safety, there's going to be a group of people during that time who are going around much as the false prophets did in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they are going to go around hawking peace and safety, peace and safety, peace and safety. And the multitude will buy into that message. Then sudden destruction comes upon them 
as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day, the day of the Lord, should overtake you as a thief. You're not caught off guard. You're not caught unawares. For you, or you, are sons of light. You see the contrast between the two? And that's his point. That's his point. As a matter of fact, Bullinger says this, the repetition of the town's you, the, the pronoun you, and in the King James ye, in these verses stand in marked contrast to the repetition of the pronoun they and them in verse 3, thus pointing out to us a significant lesson that those who are waiting for, the, for God's Son from heaven, that's the previous chapter, we're waiting for God's Son from heaven. We're not waiting for the day of the Lord. We don't participate in it. Does that suggest a pre-tribulation rapture? I'd say yeah. Very strongly. We're waiting for God's Son from heaven. Are, uh, are not concerned with times and seasons. And Jesus told us not to be. And, and one writer, uh, Craig Keening, said that it's, it's actually Jesus is borrowing that, those statements, that phraseology from uh, it's not yours to know, he says, when he ascended into heaven, the d- times and seasons. The times, chronos, being long extended periods of time, the seasons are those things that happen within that broader time framework of chronology. are not concerned with the times and seasons which have to do with the day of the Lord and his coming as a thief on the ungodly. So you see, that's, that's the, 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 the unfolding of this text for us. That's because we're informed. It's going to come unexpectedly. Comes as a thief in the night. Thieves do not announce uh, their plans. (laughs) It's all done undercover. It's all done surreptitiously. They don't come and knock on your door. Of course, in today's world, they just walk into jewelry stores and, and department stores and drug stores and just start grabbing stuff off. But still, they don't announce that they're coming. Thieves do not announce. It comes as a thief in the night, not for Christians, but for the unbelieving world. And that's a comfort to us. We are comforted one 
to another, literally. Each other is comforted by this truth and edify one another just as you are also doing. You're doing these things. That's the genius behind this church. What Paul taught them and they learned from it, they used it to mutually edify one another. I suspect that somebody in the congregation took notes. Now, they didn't have a big or a, a, a Parker pen like we do, or somehow this information was taken in hand and it was taught to each other. The elders of the church did that in, in the assembly here. Let me move on to this next point, the reality of doom. For when they say peace and safety, and they will be teaching that. Jeremiah 6.14 says, Of the people of that day they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, there is no peace. You hear from the White House today, reporters asking questions, everything's good. There's nothing going on. Uh, Part of his cabinet appear before Congress, and everything's good at the border. I mean, everything's good. There's nothing to worry about. And we're we're fed this, this lie, just as the false prophets did in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Fed lies to the people, telling them everything is good. It's all good. That's known as gaslighting. <laughs> and we live in a world where we have to have a real deep discernment to see through all of this nonsense. They're saying peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Just recently, our granddaughter delivered another baby for us, a great-granddaughter. I was thinking about that. Her, Her name is Rose, and the middle name is Etta, Rose Etta. She's the Yellow Rose of Texas. Little Rose is her, is her name. He uses the analogy here of this time unfolding with birth pangs. What signaled the beginning of labor was that the amniotic sac broke, the water broke. And once that begins... Once that begins, there's no turning back. Labor pains are initiated. She called her mother, my daughter, and said, my water's broken. And immediately my daughter got in the car and drove down to Houston from Missouri. And lo and behold, in a short time, a baby comes into the world through the process of labor pains. These pangs did not begin at Christ's ascension. If so, so if we're close to the day, then we must be seeing some of the birth pangs, and they must be intensifying. And I contend that they are. Some of the things that Jesus predicted, 
and I take time to go into it. But for the believer, deliverance is promised. If the day for unbelievers is inescapable, for the believer, verses 9 and 10, there is the promise of deliverance. Look at these verses. For God did not appoint us to wrath. And anyone reading attentively this passage of Scripture and reading it through and maybe reading it and having it read and reread in the assemblies, as no doubt they did, would certainly recollect a reference back in chapter 1 to verse 10 to their conversion experience. They were delivered and turned to God, verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven. Whom he raised, that is God, from the dead, God the Father, even Jesus Christ, or Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath. That's eschatological in my opinion. It's not hell, although hell is eschatological in one sense. But he uses the same concept here in this section. We're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the emphasis there is on uncertainty or purpose to obtain salvation or deliverance from this time of wrath. And further, he buttresses that with the promise of life. Verse 9, salvation is obtained. Deliverance is obtained. It is not talking about salvation in that context in a sense of justification, forgiveness of sin. It's eschatological in scope and in context. It is salvation or deliverance. Who died for us? And this harkens back to the language previously in chapter 4 when he's substantiating the resurrection of fallen saints who've fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again as a logical consequence and sequence, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That is confidence that we have promised. Here he says, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That's the promise to the saints. Promise to you, promise to me. And it's predicated on his death. For us, his substitutionary atonement, that's the language he uses there. He died in your place. He took the penalty that you deserved, I deserved. And as a result, there's certain promises that go along with that. And one of those promises is that we'll live together with him eternally. But how are we to live now? Let's look at that. Let's look at the responsibility of us in light of the Lord's day. Verses 4 and 5, look at them. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Uh, just, just let that, that phrase, that clause absorb into your mind. You as a Christian in Thessalonica, you as a Christian here in Rio Rico in this assembly this morning, the Bible clearly indicates you're not in darkness. Unlike the world, they are in a spiritual darkness. They're blinded to spiritual truth. And until the Spirit of God reveals the person of Christ to them and opens their mind and opens their heart, they'll not believe. You, beloved, you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Why won't want it? Because they'll be gone. They're prepared because they're sons of light, sons of the day. These are figures of speech, obviously. Descriptive. It's a descriptive genitive. It's describing these sons. They're sons of light, the spiritual life. They've been elevated. Uh, John uses that language in his first epistle, speaking of God himself. Verse 5 of chapter 1, 1 John, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. By conversion, we have been elevated to a position of being sons of light and sons of the day. These two phrases are basically synonymous, light and day. Because daylight governs the daytime. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So this day cannot surprise us. And so our responsibility in light of that is found in the inference here. Verses 6, 7, and 8. I suggest you three things. They have an imperative or command here to live soberly. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, Some some Christians proverbially would rather stick their heads like an ostrich in the sand. And try not to be aware of what's going on around them. But we're not that way. We are to be on the alert. We are not to be sleeping spiritually. And I think that's the essence of the sleep here. It's not physical sleep. It's a spiritual sleep. Which is associated in verse 7 with this reason. For those who sleep, picking up on that word, sleep in the night. And that is they do their activity. It's re- de- described here as sleep. 
but it is conduct that is done in the nighttime. And notice it's in parallel with getting drunk. We lose this uh, alertness and capability of processing things when we're in a, a state of sleeping. I can remember back in seminary, uh, I had to drive up to Dallas on Tuesday and go to school and then on Wednesday night I'd go back and preach at prayer meeting and then Thursday morning I'd get in and so my sleep habits were not the best during that time and I'd get into class and I was awake but yet I was not awake because at times I'd be dozing off and I wasn't aware of what the professor was saying and yet on one level I was aware that uh, I was there but I was overwhelmed with fatigue but here it is being overwhelmed with a uh, carousing life of drunkenness because they get drunk at night and and you've seen how they'll fall asleep in a stupor and maybe even lie in their own vomit as a result of, of being drunk they're not acute they're not aware but you're not that way beloved let us therefore final application here to do this task of sobriety but let us who are of the day, and we are, be sober. And the sobriety takes on the form of this participle, putting on, first of all, the breastplate of faith. Paul uses the breastplate in Ephesians and calls it the breastplate of righteousness. But here he is using the imagery along with faith and love. <clears throat> I believe that he's using that figure of speech I've told you about before that Bullinger says, uh, hendiatis. Hen meaning one, dia or dia meaning through one thought or one idea through two words. And the two words here are faith and love. Could be translated or understood to mean the breastplate of a loving faith. A loving faith. Faith working by love, he writes to the Galatians. Though I have faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, Paul writes, I am nothing. So faith and love are in conjunction with each other. It's faith operating, expressing itself lovingly. And he says to put that on. Now, this is one assembly that had given themselves to that love. They were devoted to loving one another and he tells them to increase in that love. Looking back at chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, you increase more. So the, the breastplate, the activity they are to take on again is that loving faith. That keeps them alert, keeps them alive, so to speak, sober. And the second one is the helmet of the hope of salvation. In Ephesians, it's just simply the helmet 
of salvation. Here it is the hope of salvation. It is that hope which is expressed, you'll remember, back in chapter 1, verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience or endurance of hope. And what keeps us alive and well is to have that hope, that expectation, that full focus, which is uh, horizontal. Faith is vertical. Hope is looking out to the future, the hope or the consummation of deliverance. And I believe he's using it in that sense in verse 9, therefore. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Keep focused on that deliverance that's coming. Now let me just quickly close here. These, these are important points. There's a sobering word here for an unbeliever. Should the Lord come? The day and day of the Lord unfold, there's no escape. There are those today, as a matter of fact, there was an article written by one of the editors, Jim Dobson, for Forbes magazine, and it's called Billionaire Bunker Owners Are Preparing for the Ultimate Underground Escape. The underground meaning bunkers underground bunkers. They're building bumpers and there are a lot of people interested in prep. Prepare for this. Prepare for that. Get yourself a supply of six months of food and people are buying that and they have armories and, uh, and bug out bags and so forth. Places that they're going to go if, if something serious happens and these billionaires are building bunkers and uh, buying properties on islands thinking that somehow when doomsday comes wherever it is that they're going to be protected and this one particular company called Rising S Bunkers in Texas is making a tremendous he said their business is, is increased 2000 fold making bunkers for the rich and famous to think that they can escape when this day unfolds, there's no escape. None. They will not escape. But you, beloved, will escape. Amen? You will escape. I will escape. Because he's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. He's died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we're going to live together with him. That's our hope. And we look for him to come from heaven and deliver us. If you don't know Christ, you're in, right now, before that day even unfolds, you're in a serious predicament. When that day unfolds, it's, it's going to be unlike anything that this world has ever seen. Half the world's population, if the numbers are right, from the book of Revelation, and I believe they are, it's more than half actually will die. It's, it's, it's not going to be a beautiful day. It's not going to be a, a walk in the neighborhood. 
wish I had more time. This, this text demands more time. Nonetheless, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to live soberly. To take that helmet and put it on my head. The, the helmet, the hope of salvation. To put on the breastplate of loving faith. And live as, as though my life depended on it. God help us. God prepare us for that hour. Because we are obligated in light of the day of the Lord to live soberly now. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the promise of God. For indeed, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. What a blessed promise. The hope of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.